Thank you for listening to the First Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. Here you will be able to listen to all of our Sunday morning sermons. Be sure to hit the subscribe or follow button so you don't miss a sermon. Enjoy today's message. The unity of the Bible. One thing we often talk about is we often talk about the unity amongst believers and how we should be unified. You've heard Chris say it before. We are to be united but not uniformed. Right? We are to be unified as believers. But something we don't always talk about is the unity of the Bible and how the Bible is unified. Sometimes that's a hard thought to process because the Bible can appear to contrast itself in a few different ways. But the truth is, is that the Bible is completely unified together. Now, maybe you're like me and you've had a few different Bibles throughout your life right? Here's a picture of a Bible similar to what I had when I was younger, right? The NIRV Kids Study Bible. This was my first actual Bible, not like a comic book or something like that that I had when I was younger, but this was something similar to an actual Bible that I had when I was younger. Moving on from there, I got myself a Bible after I was baptized at the age of nine, had my name engraved on it. It was leather. All right, my name was spelled wrong, but it was a nice sentiment. Okay, darn that A in my name. If they just didn't put that A there, I'd be fine. But no, the 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 name was spelled wrong, but it was a leather Bible. It was super nice. NIV. I upgraded from the NIRV to the NIV. Okay, I was I was good to go. And then from there. I joined a group called FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Some of you might have been in it or have a grandchild or a son or a daughter or some of you teenagers might be in it yourself now. And I went to a camp for FCA and they gave us a Bible called God's Game Plan Bible. And it was all about sportsmanship and it had devotionals, it had plans for you to go through that was all about being a good sport, being a a Christian who's not just a Christian who, or not just an athlete who is a Christian, but being a Christian who is an athlete. So you're a Christian first, not an athlete first. And that was the whole premise behind it. Moving on from there, I went to seminary, and in seminary, I studied Greek and Hebrew, and I would like to say that I was able to just read along with professors with my Greek Bible, word for word, all right? That'd be very impressive, but I was not able to do that, shockingly, right? Sometimes I'd get caught in a letter, and I'd be like, I don't even remember what that letter is, and then you get to the Hebrew Bible, and you're reading from right to left instead of left to right. You get all mixed up. You figure out you've opened your Bible the wrong way. It's just, it, it's just a mess, all right? It's just a mess. But what I eventually bought was what was called an interlinear. An interlinear is when it translates the the words in the Bible, word for word, what each word means in the English language from the language either Greek or Hebrew. And so I was somewhat able to follow along a little bit better with that. And then moving on from there, I got into ministry and I bought another leather-bound Bible that was a red-letter Bible. It was an NLT And I enjoyed it very much, and I used it for a while, and I preached from it for a while. And then I managed to find the YouVersion Bible app. And it's still what I use today primarily. One of the reasons why I use the YouVersion Bible app 
the most and why I prefer it so much is because of the interactivity between friends that I have, the, the multiple plans that I'm able to use, just the different varieties of what it can give to, to not only me, but to my friends as well. They can see I highlighted a verse, they can text me about it, or I can mention something in person. Hey, I saw you highlighted a verse the other day. I love that verse. That's awesome. And it's a nice way to connect with other believers, not just with God through your Bible, but with other believers as well. And so I tell you all that to, to show you that the Bible has a lot of different variations. Right? Most times we think of the different translations of the Bible, but the Bible itself has many different variations. But each and every variation of the Bible, each and every translation of the Bible is, in fact, united. Many of us, when we read the Bible, we think of two different parts. We think of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We think of the Old Testament where God was all angry and mad and he was doing things and just kind of, you know, marking people down and doing his thing and, you know, whatever I had to do, right? And then we think of the New Testament. We think of, oh, this is when Jesus came. It's a lot happier. God was a lot nicer, right? He was, he was better to people, as, we, as some people I've heard might say, right? But what we don't realize is that the Bible appears to contrast with itself, but it never actually does. Because our Bible, the Bible, God's Word, is completely united. Some ways that I've seen people see the Bible contrast with itself is through creation and destruction, right? In Genesis chapter 1, we see God create the entire world. We see God create man. We see him create the seas, the skies, everything that there is. And then just a few chapters later, Genesis 6 and 7, we see him flood the entire earth and destroy most, if not all, of humanity, except for Noah and his family and the two by two of the animals. Not only that, but we see sorrow and joy. We see the book of Lamentations, which is just a reflecting on Babylon's siege of Jerusalem. Just the, the terrible things that happened, the sorrow that happened for the people of Jerusalem as Babylon sieged them and destroyed them and went through all that war with them. But then we can move on later into the New Testament and read about Romans 6. Where, where the Bible tells us we are dead to our sin, but alive in Christ. And what a joy that we have from reading about how we're dead to sin, but alive in Christ. Not only that, but the war and conversion in the Bible as well. First Samuel chapter 15 talks about how Saul invaded and, and had war with the Amicalites. And not only did he kill the warriors, but he killed the children, he killed the mothers, he killed the women, and he went and just had all-out war, complete destruction over the people. But later on, we can read about the conversion of Queen Sheba in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, of how Queen Sheba was converted to a follower of God because of Solomon and his faithfulness to God. Not only that, but, and this is just a funny one, I think, that, that, that people often see, is, is the, how the Bible can contrast with itself with intimate love in one area and then talking animals in another area, right? You, you read Song of Solomon, you can go there and, and, and you have a good time, read that, do your thing, and then all of a sudden you go to Numbers chapter 22 and you're like, why is this donkey talking? Why is this Shrek? I don't understand what's going on, Right? contrast at times, and it makes us a little bit uncomfortable if we don't understand exactly what is happening throughout the entire story of 
the Bible. So then we have to ask the question, how can a book with so many different parts be so unified? I think the most important place to start is how are believers with so many different beliefs, how can they be so unified? Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 19. It says this, For he, he being Christ, holds the whole body together, the whole body being believers, the church, with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. It is Christ that holds us together. But not only is it Christ that holds us together, but it is Christ that holds the Bible together. It is Christ who, who brings every believer unified. Every believer is unified in Christ, and every part of the Bible is unified in him as well. When I was at KCU, I got done with my first year, and one of the things that I noticed in my first year is that there weren't a whole lot of students who were unified from the sports teams and those who were from like the, the ministry areas and the Bible department, those different kinds of things. And it broke my heart because we had a lot of athletes on campus who didn't know Christ. And so I thought to myself, if only we could get some of these athletes to know some of these ministry majors, these ministry majors could minister to these athletes and help them come to Christ. And so I set out my sophomore year to be the RA of the soccer dorm and to do everything I could to try and unify these soccer athletes and some of these ministry majors so that they could help lead some of these athletes, if not all of these athletes, to Christ. Well, about that same time when I got there, a guy by the name of Luke came. And Luke was, was a guy. We weren't really friends at first. But Luke, the reason why Luke and I weren't really friends at first was because he had a whole lot of different theological beliefs than what I had. And so him and I would contrast and, and, and fight and have hard, hard, you know, difficult times together all the time because we wouldn't be able to agree on different things. And so what it actually turned out doing was it actually turned out dividing some of the ministry majors. Because some of these ministry majors believed this was right. Some of these ministry majors believed this was right. And then we had a division between the ministry majors when I'm trying to bring the athletes closer to the ministry majors. And so after the first semester, I, I come back and I'm thinking to myself, I'm, I'm going to come back and I'm going to try again and I'm going to do my part and, and do it even better than I did before. I'm going to do my absolute best. Well, we come back the very first night of second semester and there's no water in our dorm. And we think, oh, okay, whatever, you know, really cold, but there's no water. Maybe they just forgot to turn the water on. You know, RA John will we'll address it in the morning. All right. Well, the men's dorm leader for the entire campus comes to our dorm at 7 a.m. and he says, hey, I want to let you guys know that a pipe, a water pipe for your dorm actually burst over break and we didn't discover it until last night when you guys said you didn't have water. So now we're actually going to have to move you out of this dorm and put you in other dorm rooms for the entire next semester. And that was difficult to hear. Because the team was getting so close, and, and I felt like there was a lot of good things being done. But in the same way, I kind of looked at this, and I said, all right, half of these guys are going to have to go to, to the, the football dorm called Waters, and another half of them are going to go to the ministry dorm called Pfeiffer. And so I looked at it in a way, and I thought, this is 
kind of a good thing because maybe some of these maybe some of these athletes will get closer to some of these ministry majors now and be a little bit more unified. Well, being the the guy that I was trying to be, I was trying to be selfless. I was trying to be kind. And so I let all the soccer players choose which rooms they wanted to go to first. There were only enough rooms in these other dorms for our soccer players and for me. There was not any extra beds or anything like that. And so I, I, I let these guys pick, and, and I'm letting them do their thing. And, and I'm noticing that rooms are going left and right, left and right. And finally we get to the end, and the, the guy in charge of the men's dorms, he looks at me and he says, well, we have one bed left. I said, okay. He said, but it doesn't have a desk. You don't have a closet. You don't have pretty much any area to yourself. All you're going to have is a bed and a teeny tiny little nightstand with maybe a couple drawers in it. I thought, oh, well, that stinks, but, you know, it is what it is. I'll, I'll make do. It's fine. It's just for a semester. It's not like it's going to happen forever. And he says, and your roommate is going to be Luke. Great. So, obviously, Luke and I, not getting along, we not only had to share a room, but we had to share a closet, we had to share a desk, we had to share an eating area, we had to share basically everything other than our beds, thank goodness. All right, but he, he and I had a little bit of a rough patch there for the first couple weeks, because neither of us wanted to be together. Neither of us wanted to talk to each other, neither of us wanted to do anything together, because we were having just a hard time coexisting. But eventually, as time went on, and as we tried to be a little bit more cordial with one another, we decided the best thing to do would be to sit down and maybe just talk through some of our beliefs. Maybe we don't believe all the same exact things, but maybe we can just talk through some of our beliefs. And maybe we can come to some type of understanding at the very least. And so him and I, we sat down on our two beds, and, and night after night after night, we are, you know, looking up scriptures, saying, oh, well, I believe this because Romans says this, or no, I believe this because Deuteronomy says this, you know, and we're going back and forth with all kinds of scriptures, doing all kinds of different things. And finally, we look at each other and we say, we just need to find something to agree on, at least one thing to agree on. And we looked at each other and he said to me, well, we agree on Jesus, right? I said, that's right. I said, Jesus saved me, Jesus saved you, and we can agree that no matter what, even though you and I have differing beliefs, and, and that's difficult, and I don't know if everything you say is right, and you don't know if everything I say is right, you and I can still come to an agreement that Jesus came to save. And so from that point forward, Luke and I, Staying in the same room, even though we didn't get along all the time, and even though he would say things that I would disagree with, and I would say things that he would disagree with, every single time we would try to look at each other and remind ourselves that we agree on Jesus. And I tell you that to remind you that just like how believers find unity in Christ, the Bible finds its unity in him too. We can use the Bible in a whole lot of different ways. We can use it as a weapon. We can use it as a feel-good story. We can use it to advance our political beliefs, whatever else. We can use the Bible in a whole lot of different ways. But if we aren't using the Bible to point people to Jesus, we're not using the Bible correctly. And Jesus himself showed us this. It's not something I'm making up, but Jesus himself 
showed us this. Because finding Jesus in the Old Testament and the New Testament is essential because both of them did it. Look at Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. And this is Jesus getting up and, and talking in front of the synagogue and doing some things. I'll try my best to explain it as we go. But basically, and he came to Nazareth, he being Jesus, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. So he's getting up and he's, he's reading scripture in front of the entire synagogue. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, just like the book you and I have in our Bibles, the book of Isaiah, was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And all eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus addressed how the Old Testament connects with him. That the prophecies in the book of Isaiah and many other books don't just point to a future of what we can think of, but it points to Jesus. And that, in reality, the entire Bible points to Jesus. Look at what he says in John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Basically saying here that you're going to try and find eternal life. You're going to try to find salvation in these scriptures. When in reality, you're not going to find salvation in these scriptures. You're not going to find eternal life in these scriptures. You're not going to find the all-saving power of Jesus Christ in these scriptures. You're going to find these scriptures point to Jesus who will give you salvation, who will give you eternal life. Because it's not the scriptures that save you. It's Jesus Christ that saves you. See, in every part of the Bible, you can find Jesus. In every single section of the Bible, it doesn't matter where you're at, it doesn't matter what you're reading, you can find Jesus. And in order to know just how good the good news of Jesus is, we have to know the entire story of the Bible. To know just how important the gospel is, we have to understand the entire story of the Bible. Let's run through some of the parts of the Bible real fast. The law, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. The law anticipates Christ by exposing our hearts and persuading us of our dire need of Jesus. The law shows us that we are in need of Jesus because we cannot do it on our own. We are not perfect to accomplish it on our own. We are just not able to do it. We need someone to save us. Another part is the failures of biblical examples indirectly indicate that all will fall short in our need of Jesus. Guys like Noah, who had an alcoholic disaster with his family. Guys like Abraham, who consistently lied about his wife and had an affair. Guys like David, with his sexual sin and murder. Guys like Paul, who, who, murder, who, who was a murderer and, and, and had rebellion. In his life. All of them, even though they are great biblical figures that we look to at times, even them 
Even they needed Jesus. Because no matter how good they were, they all had a past. They all had someone or something in their life that they needed saving from. The promises scattered throughout the Old Testament anticipate Christ by creating a longing in several areas of our lives that only Jesus can ultimately fulfill. Promises like in the book of Isaiah, like we, like we just saw, Jesus called himself. Promises like in the book of Jeremiah, where there's total destruction and exile and people being, being thrown out and, and so much going on. The book of Ezekiel with the story of the priest's prison and the exile, which leads to him offering hope of the future. An image of light out of the darkness. We see that Jesus fulfills all of those promises. Look at Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 12. And this is a little bit longer one. Try to stay with me here. I know this is going to get a little confusing, but let's, let's do our best. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Since it is, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would, be, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Verses 8 through 12 are quoting Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, showing that Jesus came to fulfill the promise that he was promised that, that God was promising to the people who were in exile at that time. That even though everything looked terrible, everything looked bad for them, he was going to fulfill that promise. And not only did Jesus quote, or not only did does the New Testament quote it at that time, but Jesus himself quotes it as well in Luke 22, verse 20. But all throughout the Bible we can find, especially in the book of Hebrews, we can find connections from Jesus to the Old Testament to the New Testament, anywhere and everywhere throughout the Bible. The wisdom literature compels us to look to Christ for meaning and for the ability to live wisely. The Bible tells us that that true knowledge and true wisdom comes from only Christ, that it does not come from anyone else except Christ, that if we are going to acquire true knowledge, to acquire true wisdom, we have to look to Christ. And he is the embodiment of all that was written in the book of Job, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. He's the embodiment of all of that wisdom coming together to be wisdom for you and I today. The psalmist sometimes spoke with the voice of Christ, anticipating his suffering and exaltation. All throughout the Psalms, we can see the image of the cross and the resurrection. 
In fact, Jesus himself, while he's up on the cross getting ready to die, he says, God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And sometimes people hear that and they say, what? Why is, why is Jesus, you know, talking back to God? Why is he upset with God? He knew this was the plan. He knew this was going to happen. Why is, he, why is he saying that? Well, in fact, what Jesus is actually doing, because they didn't have all chaptered and versed, you know, Bibles with Psalm 22 or anything like that, what they had instead is they just had the first line of many Psalms memorized. And so instead of Jesus saying, hey, everybody, go look up Psalm 22, he quotes the first verse of Psalm 22 showing them that what I am going through right now is what was written about in Psalm 22. I would encourage you to go read Psalm 22 and think of, think of the cross and think of the resurrection, because it's there. Jesus connected what he was going through with Psalm 22, just by quoting, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The prophets, priests, and kings foreshadow Christ's redemptive work that excels above all others. That Christ himself is the one that connects it all, that excels above anyone else, and no man can be a substitute for Jesus. We have men who've tried. Joseph Smith has tried to be a substitute for Jesus. He's tried to show people, oh, hey, I'm here in the Old Testament. Look at me. I'm here as well. But he can't because there is simply no substitute for Jesus. There is no good news like the good news that Jesus brings us. Moving on to the New Testament, the gospel accounts introduce us to Jesus Christ and his ministry on earth, culminating his death, burial, and resurrection. The gospel accounts are are easiest for us to read about Jesus because his words are right there. His life story is right there. The men who traveled with him are right there. But in reality, all throughout the gospel accounts, not only is Jesus speaking about what he's doing, but he's also speaking about what had happened before and what will happen. Not only that, but Acts. The book of Acts is the story of believers in Jesus going out and accomplishing the mission that he had set for them. The epistles or the letters from Paul offer sustained theological reflection on the significance of the person and the work of Christ for the church, showing us that Jesus valued God and he valued people. And that is how the church should work today. Giving us wisdom for the church, saying this is how you should operate, this is what you should do, making sure that no matter what, at, at every point we focus, remember to focus on God, on Jesus above all else, and not ourselves. And finally, Revelation gives us a window into the future glory of Christ as he brings in his heavenly kingdom. Whenever I read the book of Revelation, I always try to remember the words, on earth as it is in heaven. I always try to remember those words because it is the revelation of Jesus himself, whether it be metaphor, literal, whatever part of it it is, of Jesus coming, making his return. I tell you all this, and I know we've gone through a lot and we've done a lot today, but I tell you all this to remind you that when you read the Bible, the Bible does not, is not unified through you reading it just about yourself, 
The Bible is not unified by you reading it about your political beliefs. The Bible is not unified by you using it as a weapon to try and tell people what they should or shouldn't think or should or shouldn't believe or, or, or try to diminish people or judge them or, or do those different kinds of things. The Bible points to Jesus. Because Jesus desires to engage with you. Jesus desires to relate with you. And he desires to walk with you each and every day. And the only way to do that in your life is through opening your Bible and reading it daily. Looking for him in every single part. Whether you're in Leviticus, whether you're in Revelation, whether you're in Luke, look for Jesus and where he's at. Because when you understand that God has been pointing to Jesus from the very beginning, your study of the Bible becomes a whole new adventure. Your study of the Bible will become completely different. It will completely change you. When you read it just as a textbook or as a moral handbook, it's going to give you good insight. But when you read the Bible pointing specifically to Jesus, it will change you. It will give you the one who can satisfy you with everything you need. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for everybody who's here. Thank you for your love. And Lord, most of all, thank you for Jesus. And Lord, not just that you sent Jesus, but that you gave us your word. You gave us an avenue to know more about him, a trustworthy source that we don't have to worry or, or, or think, you know, oh, is this right or is that right or, or what's the truth here, what's the lies or anything, but we can fully rely on you and fully know that you are the one who provides us with the truth and you are the one who provides us with your son to give us everlasting life. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.